Welcome to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Dustin, Timothy, and Renee. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, is Timothy Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey. Also with us today is Michael Raphael. Michael's the owner and operator of Rabbit Ears Audio, a boutique custom sound effects library specializing in unique and difficult to obtain sound effects. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Renee underscore Coronado. Tim is at Azimuth Audio. Dustin is at Pulse Train. And Michael is at Sepulchra, S-E-P-U-L-C-H-R-A. Let's do some comments. Okay, we got a couple comments from episode 006. We recorded episode 007 uh, before we had a chance to get any episodes from 6, so we'll go straight to that. This is from Morten Fomer Nelson in Copenhagen, Denmark, and he says, I'm about to rearrange a quite messy sound library of about 70,000 files. Do you guys have any thoughts regarding the structure of the library tree? And if you use tables and netmix, what kinds? You know, with me, because I use databasing software, I use SoundMiner, my actual folder structures tend to get kind of messy. Well, they don't get messy, but they tend to be less important than the metadata that I'm putting on the individual files. So honestly, I don't know how much I could contribute to that. Uh, Do you use NetMix or SoundMiner, Michael? I use SoundMiner. I am also a SoundMiner user, so the part about the tables, I guess none of us can really address. In terms of the file tree, you're right, Renee, with SoundMiner, it kind of does the organizational bits for you. So what I do is I just, each library manufacturer, which uh, one of which is Rabbit Ears Audio, I put all of those libraries in one folder and then scan from there. But I don't keep everything in a massive file tree overly organized just because SoundMiner can just scan everything in and then I deal with it from there. Michael, do you have anything to say on that? I mean, that, that's kind of a similar system that I use. I'd, and I would say that even though SoundMiner is really good at managing all that data, I wouldn't necessarily put it in. Also, I, I would advise against putting everything in one giant directory because when you have, you know, the finder eventually won't like the fact that it's got a ridiculous amount of files in one directory. I've seen it just kind of get a little bit unhappy with too many files sitting in the same directory. So having some sort of structure is good. But if you do have something like SoundMiner or or Basehead or something that can help you manage that stuff, uh, I don't think you need to go crazy. But having having something (laughs) will be useful. The one thing I'd say about the way that SoundMiner works with file structures is it's very easy to find a file you like and click on the icon of the file and it'll just show you everything that's in the same folder as the file that you like. So to that degree, your file structure does matter. A lot of the sound effects that I have do come from purchase libraries. And so those naturally come in a structured format anyway. So, you know, it's not a lot of kind of post management on my side when I'm importing stuff. When I'm handling my own stuff, I do tend to break it down by Things that I can remember, like if I did a West Texas gun shoot in the fall of 2011, I'll call that folder that. And then inside of that will be all the basic things that came out of that shoot. Yeah, I tend to keep every shoot in one folder together so that I can use that trick in SoundMiner. So if I like one skate sound, I can go find other ones from the same recording session or something like that. Yep, but I don't ever stress on it beyond that. If you you don't have a database management program, you probably ought to get one if your library is that large. Just handling that straight with the finder is 
overwhelming. I would definitely recommend getting saw minor bass head something. For sure. So our next question is from Simon Charles, and this is again in regards to uh, episode six, which covered uh, some analog synths and such. And it says, Simon says, still loving the podcast and the advice and tips you guys are giving out. They're fantastic. Although I'm not really into synths, that type of sound creation is still great to hear in the process of working through those types of sounds and what you can create. I'd love to hear more about the way you guys go about planning, preparing, and executing a recording session out in the field. I know this will be different for everyone in various countries with different rules and regulations, but the basics would be great to hear. Keep up the great work, and if I can be of assistance of any way, I'd be more than happy to help out. Thanks, Simon. So, do you guys have any special tips or tricks of when you are getting set up for a recording session out in the field? You know, with me, I definitely, if it's an important shoot or if it's something that I'm not sure what I'm getting into, I will always put the whole rig together and fire it up and record with it and listen to it in the studio before I take it, before I break it back down and take it back out on location, especially if the rig is any kind of complex. I always have to test everything all the way out. The other thing I'll say is be very careful to make sure that you bring enough power and bring enough storage capacity and wipe all of your hard drives before you head out there. I've definitely made the mistake of not wiping a hard drive and losing a take because I ran out of space. Yes, power is a big issue too. I like to do basically what you're saying, Renee, but I try and do it the night before so that I can have everything charging overnight. So when I pack up in the morning, I know everything is fully charged and ready to go. But that's the main thing that I worry about is getting out there and having no batteries or power. So it's not as big a deal, obviously, if you're going to be able to plug in. But if you're planning to run off battery power, make sure everything is charged up and you have more than one option for batteries for every piece of gear. Michael, what do you think? I don't know if I do anything that differently. Uh, It sounds like you guys pretty much covered it. The only thing that I simplified in the last year is just moving to a system with one battery for everything, you know, using NP1 batteries and distribution box so I don't have to worry about different pieces of gear and different, you know, powering them with uh, different batteries. So that's sort of simplified things a, a great deal. But other than that, I don't do anything that differently than what you're describing. Yep. Build your rig, test it, take it out. Okay, next up, we have a comment from Twitter from at iradley, I-R-A-D-L-E-E. And she says, brilliant podcast suggestion. It would be great if you uploaded all the episodes to SoundCloud. It's much better for mobile listening. We're not going to be doing it to SoundCloud just because we have such a large amount of content that it exceeds their free account. But we are on iTunes now, which we weren't for the first couple episodes. So you can stream from iTunes and download straight from iTunes. So that's something new for the podcast there. And then the last question we're going to go to today is from uh, Robert Ramirez. And he says, nice podcast. I thought there might be a good topic or subtopic in the best, easiest way to import MS recordings from a library into Pro Tools via SoundMiner or NetMix. I work at one of the major studios and a lot of the libraries in MS, and the best way I've found is to insert an MS stereo decoder from SoundHack into the VST rack. Do you guys have any better solutions? You know, that sounds like the best solution to me outside of just making sure that everything is properly metadata tagged. If you have it tagged as MS undecoded inside of SoundMiner or whatever other database program you're using, obviously that's the best thing. But if you have a massive library that's not labeled all the way and you didn't build it, I feel like just throwing an MS decoder on it is probably the best solution I could think of. You know, one handy little feature that SoundMiner has with MS files is that there's a menu option for to see the channel layout. So if you're working with multi-channel files, but 
even if you're working with ms files if you type in i forget the syntax in there if you need m slash s but uh i think you do need the slash it's not in front of me right now but if you have an ms file you can type ms in there and it'll actually decode the file on the fly during playback i had no idea about that so the the only thing that's the downside about that is you're stuck sort of just decoding it as is obviously if there's someone who's inserting a plugin and they want to play with the image they can do that but if you just want to if you're flying through files that are ms files you can just type in ms into the channel layout and it'll play back decoded it'll matrix the file for you that's cool just just for playback do you guys keep your ms files in your library decoded or undecoded for, for myself i pretty much decode everything I mean, I have all the raw files that are MNS files, but I don't keep them that way, you know, in the library. Yeah, I also pretty much decode everything. I think that's kind of an American thing. I think the Europeans really like leaving all of their stuff in MS and then manipulating that in the context of the mix. But me personally, it's one step too many, I think. So I just decode it. Yeah, I have actually two databases. Well, in my master database, I keep them decoded. And then I have a second database with them the other way so that if I want to go back, I can go grab them. Do you ever do that? Rarely. <laughs> well, I'm mostly an editor. And uh, so the mixer will sometimes come back and say, give me the originals because I want to mess with it. Gotcha. And he'll just put it on an MS track and start messing with it that way. Yeah. But when I have to do like a screening with the director and stuff like that, I, I, I don't deal with it in that m manner. Yeah. In terms of our internal workflow over here, it would be more cumbersome to have certain files that had to be broken out within their food groups and then decoded separately into MS. It's easier for those food groups just to be able to mix between whether something was recorded ORTF or MS or whatever it may have been on the same track. So with that, let's jump into the first segment, which talks about this kind of thing in particular. So here's a little listening test I put together to demonstrate the differences in the various stereo recording techniques and to focus in on a couple of things you can do with MS in particular. The three techniques I'm going to be looking at are MS, ORTF, and XY. MS was developed by Alan Bloomline and patented in 1931. The way it works is you have a cardioid mic shooting forward and a figure eight mic right next to it. To make a stereo recording, you sum the cardioid and the figure eight and pan that to the left, and then you invert the polarity of the figure eight and sum it to the cardioid again and pan that to the right. What results is a stereo field that is 100% mono compatible because when you sum the channels to mono, the figure eight mic completely phase cancels itself out and all you're left with is the cardioid. The ORTF technique came around 30 years later. Uh, ORTF is a French acronym standing for the French Broadcasting Association. The setup is two cardioid mics at an angle of 110 degrees, 17 centimeters apart. It looks pretty wide in practice, uh, but the end result is really great. And the last one is XY. Most people know what XY is. Two cardioid microphones, 90 degree angle, capsules right next to each other. So for this test, I wanted to not only compare the three stereo techniques to each other, but I also wanted to experiment with swapping out different 
polar patterns on the M side of the MS technique. So my setup for the MS test was a Sheps CMC6 with the MK8 capsule that would act as my side that I would decode against three other capsules. One was the Sheps CMC6 with the Omni head. The other was a Sennheiser MKH50 cardioid. And the last one was a Sennheiser MKH70 shotgun. For the ORTF and XY setups, I used Line Audio CM3s. With all the mics running at once, I made three recordings. The first recording was the opening and closing of a garage door in our warehouse. Up close, about a foot away. Here's the MS with the shotgun. MS Cardioid. MS Omni. ORTF. XY. For the second test, I backed off about 10 feet so you could really hear the reverberant field a little more and hear what the different M capsules did in the MS recordings. Here's the MS shotgun. MS with the cardioid. MS Omni. ORTF. And XY. And for the last test, I wanted to hear how they tracked the stereo field. So I grabbed a shell-based percussion instrument and ran from right to left as fast as I could. Here's the MS shotgun. MS cardioid. MS with the Omni. ORTF. And XY. Let's hear what the guys have to say. So, yeah, I was pretty surprised by how subtle some of the MS differences were. I expected the difference between the shotgun and the Omni to be a little more dramatic than what I heard, especially in a big reverberant space like that. ORTF sounded exactly like I thought it would, big and beautiful and wide, and XY sounded like I thought it would there too, which is a lot narrower. It's still a stereo sound, it's very phase coherent, but it's not nearly as big sounding as the MS and the ORTFs were. What'd you guys think? I was actually getting that in mono, so I couldn't. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, I have the same I have the same issue there. So <laughs> I am worried that I'm gonna have nightmares about that door. <laughs> closing over and over and over again in my, you know, just like crushing me. I could a, ship you the files right quick if you want to hear them in stereo. I wouldn't be able to, you know, I'm not in a place where I can actually go play those back, you know. Gotcha. Well, you'll have to take my word for it then. Okay. I trust you. I trust you. Anybody who runs with a, what did you call it? A shell-based percussion instrument? Yeah, it was like a little string with a bunch of uh, shells on it. Yeah, you were very fleet of foot there with your... I was hauling. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> I was going That's so good. fast. Well, you know, I did a I did another pass where I was walking, and it just it didn't show off the stereo field nearly as well. It's it's slightly less frightening than the door closing over and over again. <laughs> what kind of door is that? Is it a metal? It's just a, a garage door in the warehouse. Oh, that we big have. warehouse garage door. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, definitely having nightmares. I guess we'll have to talk about this in general terms rather than those exact examples. So maybe 
rephrase the question so we can get back in? Sure. The ORTF sounded nice and big and wide, and the XY um, was how I expected. It was a stereo sound, but it was much more narrow and um, it was much more narrow and focused. When we're choosing stereo techniques in general, Michael, when do you decide to go with MS versus some of the other stereo techniques? You know, I think MS has been like my go-to thing for a long, long time just because it's so practical. You can make things sound great. It all fits in one Zeppelin. You can go wherever you need to go with it and uh, not have to lug a bunch of gear. I don't know about you, but I, I like mono things a lot. So having the ability to just go home and decide that you you don't need something in stereo is a really nice nice thing and have your uh content centered the way that you want as opposed to having to pl- you know play with some stereo recording that maybe you don't want in stereo and you don't have that option anymore so i think it's just a very practical technique that comes in handy so playing around with ORTF is only something that i've started recently doing in the field cuz you know i've been doing all these ambiences with it and generally if you're hiking out into the woods with a bunch of gear it can be a pain in the butt it pays off, but generally MS is a go-to thing for me just because you can control the results and the results are generally good and you don't have to worry about all the accessories you need to support your ORTF rig. It can be a pain. Yeah, totally. The, the wind protection deal is a big deal with regards to MS because you can even get a full stereo, I'm sorry, you can even get a full surround rig in a single blimp with just three channels with an MS rig, and I've done that before. If you have that much surround recording capability, you can do the types of recordings where you need to pick up and be mobile and move from place to place, say within a building, in a way that you can't do it with five discrete mics that are aimed out in the world. Yeah, I mean, if you're doing anything where you're queuing, aside from doing something that's just mono or MS, I don't see how anything else is all that useful. I wouldn't want to be queuing with an ORTF pair. I mean, that seems kind of a little wacky to me. Renee, do you want to just describe the surround mic setup that you were just referencing? Sure. So I recently went to uh, Baylor Hospital and did a whole bunch of surround recordings in dual MS. And so it's a three-channel setup. You have a cardioid mic shooting forward. You have your side mic, which shoots left and right in the figure eight pattern. And you have another cardioid mic that sits on top and shoots backwards. And the way that it decodes, actually Sheps has a really great free plugin out there that will take those three channels and decode them all the way up to 5.0. Or it can go down to LCR or quad or however else you want to decode it. The general premise being that with just an MS rig, you can actually get LCR. And with the dual rig, you can get LCR and the LS and RS from decoding the rear-facing mic against the figure eight. And it actually sounds really good. It's super, super phase coherent. Some of the things that I recorded at the time were things like I was not right near a wall, but I was near enough to a phone to where when it rang, it was so hyper-localized in space in the control room that it was creepy (laughs) how real it sounded. The downside in some of the tests that I've run against ORTF is it sounds smaller. The entire stereo field is very, very phase coherent, and it's definitely wider than, say, if you were to do 2XY setups, but it's not nearly as wide as if you were to space some mics out. The other downside with regards to surround MS setups is you can get into some tricky phase issues in film situations when you're taking MS recordings and putting them back in the surrounds and then running them through Dolby processes. Things can start to get a little a little tweaky and weird because you are deriving so many channels from so few mics. Is that because of the Dolby process or is that because, you know, someone sort of pushed the, the S too much? 
I've read about that stuff sparingly, and I'm just kind of wondering the problems that people run into because of the Dolby process, or is it because people are just decoding MS a little too wide and pushing things out of phase? I, I think to some degree, the Dolby process does phase things. And so what you're doing is you're stacking one phase thing, which is your MS decoding, on top of another phase thing, which is the Dolby processes. When you stack those things together, it's just inherently going to be a little less stable. I'm working on another project right now where I'm recording a whole bunch of sports crowds. And I've been doing it two ways. I've, I've been doing it one way with the dual MS rig where I'm getting a whole stereo sound just from the one blimp. I'll go back another day and I'll do it in dual ORTF. So I have ORTF shooting forward, then ORTF right next to it shooting backwards. And in those types of situations, I'm finding that I do like the ORTF sound better than the dual MS sound. With regards to surround recordings in particular, I will do dual MS if that's the most practical way. But if I have everything in my control, I think I'm coming to the conclusion that I like dual ORTF a lot better. Why exactly? What are the differences you're finding? I find that I just like the sound generally of four capsules shooting in the directions of the speakers, of my quad speakers. I think I just generally enjoy that sound better. It's a little fuller. It's a little wider, not a lot wider. The MS rig actually sounds pretty wide. It just sounds a little bit more like four mics aiming in four directions. And I guess I find that more stable and more appealing. But with that said, the dual MS thing sounds awesome. It sounds really great. I just like the dual ORTF just a little bit better. And honestly, in all of the field recording that I'm doing, and when I'm doing stereo stuff, I almost never do XY anymore. It's either MS or ORTF. It's never XY for me anymore. Yeah, it's pretty much the same with me. What about you, Tim? Uh, I actually uh, will stand up for XY a little bit. Do it! Do it! <laughs> I like XY uh, for the simplicity. You can throw stuff up super quick. And I agree with a lot of what you're saying. But I, I also have an XY mic that I invested quite heavily in. So that, <laughs> that makes a big difference as well. I have a Sankin mic that I really like the sound of. But I have limited experience actually with MS. So that's why I'm liking hearing your guys' opinions on that. You know, the other tricky thing about MS is that it's expensive to get into. Definitely. There's not any cheap, good sounding figure eight mics on the market. Your good figure eight mics are the Sheps mic and the Sennheiser MKH-30, and AKG Blue Line has one, but that one's an electric condenser. It's good for doing things like that garage door I did, but it's probably less good for ambiences because electric condensers are just going to be a little noisier just because of the functionality of how they're made up. There's one called an MSer that Andreas Uzenbenz actually got his hands on one of those and put a recording up on the Facebook group, and it sounded awful. It was so noisy. It was ridiculous. There's just not a lot of figure eight mics on the market, and so it's, it's an expensive setup to get started with just solely on the figure eight mic alone. And I think that keeps a lot of people out of it. And it's, it's a shame because it's a really great format. One thing that I've been trying to do, I don't have an MS rig in my personal rig. So I've been trying to jump through any kind of random hoop I can jump through to fake one. And eventually you come to the conclusion that it's just not going to be worth it. Your head goes through the whole process of, well, what if I had three cardioid mics and I shot one cardioid mic forward and one to the left and one to the right. And I used the two left and right ones as my figure eight. And I phase inverted one of them and whatever. And at the end and at the end of the day, you're like, well, why don't you just shoot one forward and one left and one right and pan it LCR and you're good. Uh, <laughs> it'll sound better. <laughs> you just can't fake that figure eight mic because it's one membrane moving back and forth. 
it's not two. And that's that's just the key consideration of the thing. And I've I've tried every way I can think of to fake that figure eight, Mike. I've tried omnis and it doesn't work. I mean, the math on it wouldn't work. If you think about the math of how that works, it just wouldn't ever work. Sounds like you should just buy a figure of eight. Exactly. And that means I have to save up two thousand dollars. <laughs> Because I can't, I can't find if if there was a five hundred dollar good sounding figure eight, I would be all over, I'd, I'd be all over it. But there's not. Well, I think you wouldn't be alone on that. The manufacturers, someone should get on, uh, get on that. Michael, you have the Sheps, right? Those are the mics you use. Yeah, I have two MS pairs. I have the the Sheps MK4 and MK8 with the CMC5 bodies and the MK4 and an MK8. I also have the MK41, but I tend to not use that for MS. And then I've got an MKH3040 pair, which sort of collects dust on the shelf. You just don't like it as well? It has its uses, but it, it doesn't get as much use, yeah. So what specific situation would you bring the Sennheiser rig out as opposed to the Sheps one? If it was over 100 degrees and really humid, yeah, probably something like that. I've had the Sheps out in minus 15 degrees Fahrenheit, and they performed. I mean, anything that's that cold is going to have some issue every now and then, but they did fine in extremely cold temperatures. It's just the, I've never bothered to take them out when it's been over 100 degrees. I mean, that's essentially why I bought the MKHs was just for those kind of situations, really hot summer humid days. But other than that, it's been a rare occasion where I've said, you know, I, sh- I should really use those instead. Yeah. So here in Texas, we go months and we will have strings of 100 degree days like for months in a row. The Sennheiser mics are definitely some of the more bulletproof mics out there, but they're definitely very flat. They give you exactly what they get. And the Sheps have a little bit of some kind of special something that it's hard to define, but it makes they make things sound good. You know, the other thing that I found with MS is once you get that figure eight mic, you can decode a lot of different mics against it. Ideally, yeah, you run with the, the Sheps MK8 and the MK4 and call it a day. But if, if you can just get your hands on the MK8 with the body, I've been amazed at how many different cardioid mics I can decode against it and have it sound pretty killer. Even in that test we just heard, I'm decoding Sennheisers against it. Actually, it's very common for me to, to decode my little Line Audio CM3s against it for my surrounds. And they just sound killer against a whole bunch of different cardioid mics. So a second ago, we were talking about how hot it is here in Texas. You, know, you guys live up in the north. Tim, you just did a great post about recording in the cold. And what I'd love to get into now is recording difficult places and, and difficult to access places or difficult places to record. Why don't you talk about some cold stuff, Tim? Well, I live in Toronto, and I like to uh, spend a lot of time in the winter about five or six hours north of Toronto, where it does start getting quite cold. In order to record in those conditions, you have to take some special precautions. And as we were saying earlier about getting your batteries charged, batteries in the cold weather is a major problem because they do not last nearly as long in cold weather as they do in warmer weather. So you have to have a lot more batteries than you normally would, and you have to make sure they're charged because batteries that would have half their life left in warm conditions are just dead in cold conditions. Michael, you also record in the cold. Do you have any special tips you use with cold recording? I'd say, uh, well, based on my experience so far, I think the coldest I've ever been out recording was uh, minus 20 Fahrenheit, minus 15 Fahrenheit. So where was that? It was in Wisconsin. I want to say it was about over five years ago. I was out there looking for great horned owls that never materialized. The height of winter is their mating season, and I figured, oh, I'll go get some some great owls. And uh, on more than three occasions, I went out into the freezing cold and uh, failed miserably every time. 
having having enough batteries is really key. But I think one of the things that's helped me, like I, I mentioned earlier, those NP1 batteries, uh, I managed to get over six hours in minus 10 recently with those NP1 batteries, powering both the Cooper and the 744 without issue. Older batteries certainly won't hold up, but the other thing I don't do is bring, uh, you know, if I'm going to be out all day long, I don't bring any gear inside and where it would be warm and have condensation build up. You know, if there's like heat on in the car, I don't bring the, the gear in the heat. You just leave it in the trunk? Yeah. Any condensation will kind of wreak havoc. I mean, it's the same thing for really hot temperatures too. It's really humid. So I think keeping things at the same temperature for long periods of time will help you. But doing anything to sort of warm things up aside from batteries. I mean, if you want to try and keep batteries warm, that's one thing. But any other piece of electronics where condensation is going to develop, I, I tend to try and keep it at the same temperature. Same goes for the mics. What happens if you get condensation on the mics? What does it do? Does it just make them like crap out or does it change the sound or what happens? Uh, I've noticed uh, so when condensation develops on mics, you'll hear like little, some, uh, sometimes you'll get like little ticks. That's what I've noticed. I don't know what, what causes that, but that's what I've heard. Yeah, it, it's not static, but it's, uh, it sounds almost like a digital tick, but it's not digital. The other thing that you might want to think about, obviously, recording in the cold is your clothing, because you have to wear a lot of it, obviously, and winter clothing is really loud. So it's difficult to uh, keep yourself quiet when you're wrapped up in a giant snowsuit of clothing. But the good thing about the giant snowsuit of clothing is you can put the spare batteries underneath your jacket and keep it warm with body temperature. The other good thing about warm clothing is you won't die. Yeah, that's also good. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Living is okay. One tip that I've found that's really useful is you can get gloves where the part that covers the fingers flips back and then your fingers can be actually exposed to the elements. And that way you can actually reach the buttons and dials on your uh, recording devices and be able to pull cables and such and then flip the flap back over your fingers when you're not having to access buttons to keep your fingers warm. Because trying to hit the record button when you've got thick mittens on is difficult at best. Cool. The other thing is just simply walking around in snow conditions. Every step in snow can be very loud. So if you're recording an ambience, you cannot move at all. It's best to just hit record, walk for three minutes the other way, and then sit and rest because your jacket's going to make noise. Your Every step you take is going to make noise. Like You just have to leave the microphone away and walk away because you won't get a clean take if you're within range. So, Michael, you said you went out and tried three times to record those owls. You know, one of the things that I really admire about the way that you approach your field recording is your ability to really get out and get into certain places that are difficult for you to get to. Can you tell me maybe a story about some of the rockets that you recorded as far as breaking into the community of people, approaching strangers, and gaining access to the cool sounds that they're making? <laughs> Those were a few sessions, and I got introduced to that group of folks because I had a colleague that I was working with at the time who was really into that hobby, and he kind of took me out to an event, and I just got to meet a lot of folks out there and just got a real sense of the scale of the thing. It, I mean, I was kind of initially surprised at how large some of those rockets actually can get, Right. and I was even more surprised when I first got there that they were calling the FAA before certain rockets went up wow. for clearance. I was taken aback by that, that there were quote-unquote model rockets that were large enough to get into airspace. So I was like, oh, I should come back and I should record this stuff. 
It's a it's a really interesting diverse crowd at those events. I mean, it's folks who are like in their science club with their kids, and then there's other folks who just like to see things go boom. So you meet a wide range of people, and everyone's really you know they obviously spend a a, a fair amount of time working on these things, and they're incredibly passionate about it. So you know, I kind of connected with a few folks when I was out there, and just sort of got to talking and mentioned that I'd like to come back and record these things. And most people were super excited about the idea of having their rocket recorded and were super open to having me come back and do it. So after that initial sort of meeting with folks, I just started doing some research about the different size rockets and how large the the motors can get in the rockets and where I could find those large-scale rockets. You, you learn quickly, not every place can launch some of the larger-scale rockets. And I found a place outside of San Diego that did uh, these large-scale launches, sort of reached out to them, told them what I was interested in. When I reached out, there was a fair bit of information that I really gathered that people weren't rolling their eyes, so they were sort of happy to engage and just chat about it, and we topped on the... That, that's always the, the tricky part for me is reaching out to strangers. Like, when you say you reached out to them, what did you? who did you look for specifically to talk to, and how did you approach them? I think in that case, there was, like, just the contact on their club website and it was the like president of their like local chapter of these large-scale rockets and uh, we just started up an exchange and uh, luckily the guy was super into it and we just started emailing back and forth and I started explaining what I like to do and uh, they were really really they're really amenable to to me coming out and they were really willing to to actually do launches where they were quiet launches you know where normally when those things go up people they're there this is their hobby they're there to have fun so when a rocket goes up and it's successful, like everyone gets really excited. You know, everybody's applauding. Everyone's really, I mean, it's, it's their fun. So you don't want to go out and kind of ruin everybody's fun. So th- the one thing that was kind of amazing was that they were super willing to actually have quiet launches where they had a, got on a bullhorn and uh, said, you know, we're going to be recording some of these today and we'll let you know when. So we just asked that you refrain from applauding. And they were totally game to do that, which I was, you know, obviously super grateful for. Yeah, that's amazing right there to control a crowd like that. I'm really glad they were game because I worked on an animated series where one of the characters was a giant robot and he could shoot his hands like rockets, like missiles, and that was became the entire library for all the times he launched his hands at people. They'd fly out of his arm and it was... It was very, very helpful and saved my bacon many times. So thanks for all the hard work on that. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I love those stupid rockets. I built a, I built a bunch of um, whooshes with them where I combined them with um, some flame whooshes. When I'm not feeling creative, I just use those because they always kick ass. There's such a staple with what I do on a lot of my just white flashes and bursts and, and big kind of sweeping screen moves. I just love them. They're unique sounding. I love them. No, they're they're a lot of fun, you know. And there were two locations. There was a, a club that was in Southern California and a club in upstate New York that were both super super awesome with me, and they were super helpful. And you shot those in MS, right? Some of it's MS. There there were some stuff that's mono. I had a bunch of different stuff up for that session. But the one great thing about everyone being really just super friendly, I mean, just to put a cap on that, is that by the time I walked out of both of those sessions, I knew everything about every person's rocket that was there and how they functioned. And it certainly made doing all the librarian work a heck of a lot easier just because you actually have an understanding of what you're working with. Yeah, that's great. And generally, most of my slates were from the people whose rocket it was. So like before they'd launch everything, I'd get them to slate every detail about their rocket. That's awesome. Yeah, I had a similar experience with some helicopters that I recorded. You know, I got to go record some Bell helicopters during some of their training flights. And yeah, those guys are very intense about 
the specifics of their aircraft and uh, and about the specifics of what it sounds like when those things are doing what they're doing. And I would do the exact same thing. Before they'd launch, I'd just put a mic in somebody's face and say, okay, tell me ex- everything about what's about to happen here. And they'd go off on this five-minute spiel, and I could just use that to just meditate the things out at the back end of it. It was great. No, it's exactly right. It's anybody's passion. So, you know, whether whether it's woodworking or whether it's rocket launching, you know, it's like everybody's got something they're passionate about and you can learn a hell of a lot from them if you if you give them the time to, to sort of go off about it. Yep, totally. Well, like I said, I mean, the thing I admire so much about some of the stuff you put together is your ability to reach out to strangers and go make connection with strangers and start recording their stuff. So much of the access that I tend to gain tends to be through specific personal relationships that I have with individuals and some specific unique access that I feel like I need to take advantage of. But I have a much harder time approaching strangers and getting them to let me record their stuff. So uh, kudos to you, man, for getting that kind of stuff done. Well, thanks. And I think a key to that whole thing is just curiosity, right? It's like if you approach people and you you are are really curious about the thing that they care about most, I I don't see why they wouldn't want to open up unless they thought you were kind of crazy. You know what I mean? I mean, most people generally are pretty thrilled to, to share the things that they're most passionate about. And I think if you ask a lot of questions and you're really curious about that thing, that generally people will open up. And that's the other thing. It has to be a genuine thing, right? It's like if someone feels like they're just being used for a recording session, they're obviously not going to respond. But if the person that you're working with actually feels like you're genuinely interested in what they're doing, which for me, all the stuff I'm recording is stuff that I not only think is going to be useful, but it's stuff I'm genuinely interested in recording because I'm curious about it and because I'm you know, interested in those things. Sometimes I'm just introduced to it the month before, but after a fair amount of research, I find that I get sucked into all of these things to the point where I 99% of the time I've over-recorded everything. So those libraries exist, but there's a ton of other stuff that just doesn't get in because I just don't have the time. But I'll over-record most of the time just because I'll, I'll kind of lose myself in that process because it's just too much fun. The editing side of it when you, ha- when you over-record is, is not so much fun. <laughs> Yeah, I find that if I over-record, I just start taking the access stuff brutally before I get into any kind of fine editing. Yeah, totally. Cool. Well, hey, Michael, thank you again for jumping on the podcast with us today. Um, We'll have to get you back one day, too. Yeah, it'll be fun. This is always fun. Thanks a lot, Michael. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Adele Young for letting us bend and twist her voice in our bumpers. We're on iTunes now, so if you listen to us there, go give us a rating. Follow the show at The Tone Benders and go to ToneBenders.net to leave a comment. Also check us out at Facebook.com slash ToneBendersPodcast. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to ToneBenders. Find us online at ToneBenders.net where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at The Tonebenders or email us at dc, timothy or renee at tonebenders.net. 